Hi, everybody, and welcome to the NDSC podcast, a place to share ideas for future and new management doctoral students. I am your host, Jose, and I have prepared for you a couple of episodes we recorded at the 2022 Academy of Management Annual Meeting, live from Seattle. In this series of episodes, you'll hear from faculty and students. They all provide some great advice that I think will be super helpful for your PhD journey. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed recording them. Thanks for hearing us and welcome again. My next guest is Ned Wellman, Associate Professor in the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State. Ned is also an editorial member from ANJ, and he was my professor at ASU for my MBA negotiations class. So it was great to meet uh, with Ned again in person at AOM and had this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Ned. Um, thank you. For Good being, to be here. Being with me, giving me some time for for this interview. Something that I like to do before kind of like starting with all the academic questions and kind of like the professional topics, I like to ask more about you in kind of like your personal life, your hobbies, something that you like to do outside of research or academia. Sure, so I have three kids. Uh, that's my main hobby is spending time with them. I have a nine-year-old son, a six-year-old daughter, and a three-year-old daughter. Uh, when I'm not with my family, I really enjoy being outdoors. So I got into hiking since I moved to Arizona, mm -hmm. and some of my fun extracurricular times usually involve hiking in the Grand Canyon, or I've hiked Mount Humphreys, which is the tallest mountain in Arizona, or even just by my house, there are a lot of trails that take you up into the mountains. So that's, that's a big uh, passion of mine. I also used to play basketball, so I, I still play occasionally, even though I'm getting a little old for that, and I'm a big basketball fan. I love watching college basketball especially but also pro basketball nice 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 so now uh, going more into the subject of uh, academia what uh, can you share a little bit of what brought you into this career why you decided to pursue a phd why ob i can so i'm actually from an academic family so okay. my father i don't know if you know this was an academic he was a developmental psychologist at the university of michigan okay so i was exposed to the academic life at a very young age actually when i was three years old or four years old, my dad would have me come in and participate in child development research. So I would, <laughs> you know, have to follow through a maze and find a stuffed animal or something like that. And I remember always thinking when I was growing up that I liked my dad's job and I liked the flexibility that it gave him to be at home. So he was around a lot, even though he had this uh, fairly big job and I really appreciated having him around. So I think that first started me thinking about like, well, academia could be a good career for me. I'll also say he had me after he had tenure So I didn't get to see how hard it is before, before tenure, so that probably helped too. I was like, oh yeah, this is not so bad. Um, so then I went to college and I was just sort of bounced around a bunch when I was trying to figure out a major and I eventually settled on psychology and I just found I really enjoyed learning about people and why they do the things they do and all the crazy irrational things that, that people do. So I took a bunch of psychology classes and then coming to the end of my time, realized that the only path to move forward in psychology involved extensive graduate school. And at that time, I didn't really want to do graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I picked up a business minor and I got a job as a consultant. And when I took a job as a consultant, I thought I would never go back to school. I was just ready to be done and get out there and make some money. But after about a year, I started to realize that consulting wasn't a good long-term fit for me. 
And I also started to realize that a lot of the psychology that I had learned about was really relevant to businesses, that there are psychological principles that many people in business settings don't pay attention to, to their detriment, and that understanding more about how to get along with people, how to motivate people, I think could really help most businesses. So that's how I got into organizational behavior. To me, it was a way of taking psychology and applying it to a context where I felt like that was important. And uh, I knew, again, from my dad that the academic life was sort of a, something that I could see myself in, in the, in the long term. So I went applied to University of Michigan. I decided I wanted to study leadership because I've had a few really influential leaders in my life early on who made a big difference for me personally. And I've always just been curious, what is it about those people that let them influence other people so profoundly? How, how can one person come in? And for instance, I had a basketball coach who came in and in a couple years took our team from one of the worst teams in the city to the state champions. So uh, the question was sort of like, nothing really changed at our high school except for we had a new leader and how did he do those things? And I got really interested in those questions. So that's kind of how I found the field, combination of having a little experience with my dad and then finding OB through understanding that I wanted to try to apply psychology to better understand leadership. So I'm gonna peek a little bit more into that because I think that's a, a good uh, area to Kind of like disentangle a little bit more and that's how maybe a PhD student in the early stage kind of like finds that area of interest right and for you was leadership and I love that you talked about those influential leaderships um, and I think University of Michigan has kind of like the, the had the PDW a couple of years ago like the solar system and kind of like how you find mm -hmm. and when you're doubtful or you know like oh there's so many things that I like how can I choose my area of right. like focus? So can you can you maybe talk a little bit more of, of that, your own experience on that influence those leaders had and how like the process of once you were starting your PhD, how you say, oh yes, leadership is like, that is the, where I need to focus. It's a great question. So we were talking a little bit before, it's really hard when you're applying for a PhD program to understand how that process works and yes. the places that you should think about applying. And so I was lucky my dad was helpful in mm. at least giving me some advice about how to go about the process and what schools might be good fits. But I also applied to some psychology programs. So I think I just lucked out basically to get into the Michigan OB program that turned out to be a really good fit for me. I did write my statement about leadership, nice. but I didn't really know the scholarly literature that well. Mm -hmm. So it was just more about my experiences and I, I knew I was excited about the topic. Um, and I think it took being at Michigan, I was fortunate when I was there to get connected to people that were doing really cool leadership work. So Scott DeRue, who's he's actually a CEO now, but uh, also Sue Ashford really shaped how I think about leadership. When, and that was something that unfolded once I got into my program. I think I, like many people, many first year students, I sort of had a vague idea about what I wanted to do, but I even had no idea what the field was really like. And it, it took me a few years to figure out specifically how I wanted to study leadership. The other thing that I think was helpful for me was I, I looked a little bit more broadly. So I came in thinking leadership, I did a few leadership projects, but then in the middle of my time as a PhD student, I had a, a phase where I thought I'd try some other things too. So I did a proactivity paper, I did a work design paper. And even though I ultimately came back to leadership, I think my perspective on leadership was informed a little bit by, especially the proactivity piece where um, people don't necessarily always wait to be the formal leader to start doing leadershipy things. And to me, that unlocked some cool questions around the interplay of formal and informal leadership. And when do people who aren't formal leaders kind of step up and behave in leader-like ways or how do teams as a whole kind of navigate these problems? So I think 
I, I don't know if that answers your question yeah, a little bit about. I think it was part of my PhD journey, I think, was taking my interest in leadership from a really high-level amorphous thing to more of a specific thing. Yeah, and yeah. It wasn't until I went out on the job market and I had to make that slide that says, <laughs> here's my specific research interest in leadership that I really was able to articulate the specifics. <laughs> yeah, it takes a while. I, 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 I totally get that. So when you think about this career and your work as an academic, what is kind of like the most fulfilling thing about it? I think for me, I really enjoy the research process, so that's one really fulfilling. I, I'm fortunate that I'm fulfilled by a lot of aspects of this mm -hmm. profession, but one thing that I really like is the idea or the, the being able to be involved in answering an important question about an important topic that we, did, that we didn't know the answer to before. I think that's a, just a really exciting, cool thing, and it never gets boring to me. So mm -hmm. my father-in-law is... Yeah, works for he's like a contractor mm -hmm. and every day he goes into work it just he has these bags under his eyes and he's so unhappy about it and he just is bored by what he does and I never feel that way I think it's a great opportunity like if I'm bored by what I'm doing it's because I'm asking questions that are boring but as long as I can keep asking <laughs> interesting questions I'm always going to be interested by what I'm doing and finding those answers another thing that really is meaningful for me is having an impact on students so through teaching in the classroom and working with PhD students, I feel like I can not only contribute to growing new knowledge, but I can help people understand these concepts that I believe are really, really important and helpful in careers. And so hopefully make a indirect impact on business through people that take my classes, that get excited about leadership in a way that they wouldn't otherwise, or like you were saying, learn how to negotiate and then use that at their job. And so that's really cool to me too. I think if I was only just doing research I would really miss the teaching piece of it as well and being able to interact with students and that really motivates me and gets gets me energized also. Love it, yeah. I, I, I took, just like a little ad here, I took a NETS <laughs> class, negotiation class. Right, we my we MBA go way back. At Arizona State and it was definitely kind of like one of the highlights of my MBA and it's, it's not only me, you can ask anybody from my class at Arizona State and I think everybody who took it will say, will say the same. So it was a great, great class, loved it. On the other side of the coin, what would be uh, some of the most challenging things about this career? So my biggest challenge has been the work-life balance piece. Okay. So like I said, I have, I have kids and I used to work as a consultant. I left, maybe left that part out, but before I went back for my PhD, I worked as a consultant. And that job was less fulfilling, but it was easier from a work-life balance perspective because as soon as I was done with my assigned work for the day, I could just go home. I didn't think about my job too much anymore. And on the weekends, if I didn't have work to do over the weekends, I didn't feel guilty about not working. I was just hanging out on the weekends. As soon as I became an academic, I mean, there's that article that Bunderson and Thompson about sort of the double-edged sword of very meaningful work. And I was, I was feeling that, right? I really cared about what I was doing. I thought it was really important. And there were no clear boundaries. No one ever said, okay, you've done enough research or it's time to stop. So I just started working all the time. My first three, four years in the PhD program, there were, I, I would get to the office at like eight o'clock, I would work all through the day, and I'd go home and work a couple more hours, and I found out pretty quickly that that was not a sustainable way for me to do it. I had some mental health stuff come up and some physical health stuff come up that just sent me pretty clear signals that I had to figure out a way to contain my work. And now with the family, I think there's even more pressure around that, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, my wife uh, and I have had several conversations about um, me trying to balance time with the family with my job. And um, I'm, I like to think I'm a lot better at that now, 
but that's still always when I'm with my family, sometimes I feel guilty for not working. Then sometimes I work too much and my family gets upset with me. So that's definitely a piece of it that I'm, I continue to struggle with, I think from time to time. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep, keep on that topic. And uh, cause I think this is something you touch right now. And, and it's, been, how do you kind of like shut it off? Right. Cause I think I'm trying to do a good job and I also have little kids. Like I work on the weeks and I have my times. So I try to be very organized. But then I go, like, it's a weekend, and I try to, like, don't open the computer, but still, like, the, yes. you're thinking on the stuff, yes. right? You're thinking yeah. on the questions. or thinking. So how do you go to kind of, like, shut it off? Or, like, because I, I think I, I haven't read that paper of the, the double-edged sword. I'm going to definitely yeah. read that one uh, of that because you think this is important, right? Or at least for, for, for you because it's your area of interest. It's, like, super important. So, so what do you do or how have you approached that? So it's, this took a lot of time for me to get to the system where I think it, it works fairly well. What I do right now is I just have times that I have agreed are not work times. So <laughs> even though there's no boss saying don't work, yeah, I just, it, for myself, I, I, after dinner with my family, but until I go to bed is not a time that I work. Okay. So if I accept it, I mean, obviously there are like rare exceptions, but pretty much when I'm done and I am with my kids in the afternoon or make dinner or whatever, I, I don't go back to it. And that helped because once upon a time I'd wake up early in the morning, work, 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 do kids and do more hours at night. And it just, it just all started to bleed together. So when I decided I'm not going to work in the evenings at all, that helped. And then I really try to limit what I do on the weekends as well yeah. and just make that a, a pretty firm rule for me that unless there's something teaching wise that's very essential that I'm going to be with my family over the weekends and not work. So to the extent I need to work extended hours, I find myself getting up really early in the morning and co-authors of mine will tell you that sometimes I'll email at like 3 a.m. about a paper. So it's not a foolproof system because I can still extend the day in the mornings, but it does help, I think, mentally to know. Yeah. Um, and I've gotten to a point in my career now also with tenure and stuff where there's a little less immediate angst. And so I can just say, all right, I'm going to work. I'm going to work really hard during these times. And then I have these other times when I'm just not going to work. Nice. And I'm going to try to honor that. Yeah, but that, that being said, I'm still tempted on the weekends to go <laughs> check my email and see what's there. You know, it's not, yeah, it's not a perfect It's system. tough. Definitely yeah. tough. Is there any advice, the be, like, kind of like what's the best advice you receive? Uh, maybe as a PhD student or now as a professor that you would like to share? So I'm, gonna, I'm stealing this advice. But when I was a PhD student, the most helpful advice I got was from Jane Dutton, who's a faculty member at Michigan. And she was talking about, she's obviously a very accomplished scholar as well, and one of the people I really looked up to in the field, and she was telling me that she didn't feel like she was the smartest or best student in her, even in her immediate PhD cohort. And she said that the thing that she believed explained her success wasn't so much her like natural ability, but just her perseverance. That mm. the, the real differentiating thing for her career was when something bad happens, she got a bad review, she didn't give up, she kept going. And that's been a real, something I come back to for myself because all of us in this career are going to have times when things don't work out the way we want them to. I had, when I first started ASU, I had two or three years when none of my papers were getting accepted or, you know, you teach a class and it doesn't go quite the way you want. And I think always just remembering that the most important thing is to just persevere and keep going um, and finding ways to motivate yourself to do that. That's been very helpful advice. Nice. Um, is there a, a resource uh, that you would like to share that has been helpful for you during your career or as a PhD student and maybe this is a workshop, a paper, uh, a conference you really like, you're like, I never miss this conference, a research that you think would be helpful for, for early PhD students? Mm -hmm. 
I, so one of the things I really did is in addition to AOM, which is a gigantic conference, to explore some mini conferences. I thought those were great. So I, I remember one in particular was a leadership conference at University of Washington that okay. I went to. And it's just a completely different experience and one that I think is helpful for PhD students. By the time I left that conference, I knew every other person who was there. Mm -hmm. And there were more small workshops and it was about a topic that I cared about a lot. So that's one thing is to maybe explore, in addition to the big conferences, if there are some micro conferences specific to an area that you care about that you could, you could go to. Um, I think that's a big help. The other thing I did uh, later on in my PhD time that I think was helpful was I started to volunteer review for AMJ. Mm -hmm. And when I was out on the job market, I didn't plan on this, but it, I kind of had people who I knew who were the editors that I had been reviewing for at that journal that helped me when I was on the job market. That, you know, at least knew who I was. So that, and also getting involved within the academy was the same, had the same feature for me. So I joined uh, one of the committees as a PhD student and it just helped a lot with the networking. So maybe not, maybe not something you want to do in your first couple of years, but as you start to transition from PhD student to job market, taking advantage of some of the opportunities to get involved service-wise, like either mm -hmm. through academy or through a journal, I think could be a good way of building some name recognition around, around yourself, building some good connections. I, I definitely agree. And now that you talked a little bit about conference and AOM, is there any specific advice you would give for like first timers at AOM? I think just not to get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, to do that. I remember my first day when I was just like, there are a million people here. Everyone knows one another. I don't know anyone. And I just walked around feeling completely like I was missing what I was supposed to be doing. But I think not to put so much pressure on yourself if it's your first time to do everything and meet everyone and instead making some more manageable goals. So I, I tell my PhD students, try to find one or two people that do research in your area that you don't know yet and meet them at a mm -hmm. conference and just make that your networking goal. Maybe you go to a session that they do and introduce yourself afterwards, or maybe you email them ahead and set up some time for coffee. And then the rest of it, I think, just will unfold organically over time. Hopefully, uh, knock on wood, we'll have more and more of these in-person conferences. And every year, you build your network a little bit. And so by the time you've been five or six of them, you start to feel much more comfortable. Yeah. I, th I would also say for the first couple, take some time and go see the city where, you know, enjoy, do some fun stuff. Uh, one of the things I dislike now is that I'm just booked from morning to night every day. Of I, don't, I don't have a chance to do any of the fun stuff in the city anymore because it's all, uh, all professional stuff. And those are great opportunities. But I do sometimes I think back wistfully on like my PhD days when I had a little time to go to the pool in the afternoon or go to Disney if it's a Anaheim conference or things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's really good. That's a really good advice. And so, okay, the last question is a little game we, we created. Nice. So we searched um, through surveys to past NDC participant uh, questions, right? What would they want to know? What would they ask? So I have here in front of Ned kind of like 30-something cards. So you're going to pick one random, All and right. that's going to be like... I noticed those cards. I was wondering what they were. Yeah, now so we know. All right, let's, it's, pick, let's pick one here. Let's see. Okay, okay, you can read that one and see what it is. Ooh, my question is, how to deal with failure slash rejection? <laughs> so my perseverance comment is one piece of that. And for the other piece of it, I'll share a system that I used okay. specific to rejection at journals. Because as I mentioned, I had a couple years at ASU where that was happening to me a lot. And it was very hard to stay motivated to continue to write and submit things when they were just all getting rejected. And I was tending to fixate more on what I would call the, uh, the numerator, like how many successful uh, mm. submissions. And so the way that I, you know, things that ultimately get published, and I decided for myself, the way that I needed to motivate myself was to focus more on the denominator. How many things every year do I finish and do I submit to a journal? Mm. And if I can do that, then I 
feel like I've done my job. And so this is still the way I manage my own productivity. Is I set a goal every year of 10 articles that I'm going to submit to a journal. And I include if I get an R&R and turn that around and revise it and send it back, okay. that counts as the one. So, but I feel like I've learned over time if I can do that 10 times, either create something new and send it, or if something gets rejected, send it to a different journal, or if I need to revise and resubmit, send that back. Then over time, the law of averages works out where I have enough stuff get published. But I don't, I try not to fixate too much on whether something I send to a journal gets published or gets rejected, because at that point, it's out of my control, right? I can control doing a good job sending things out. And if I manage that, the way that I know I need to, that's a more motivational way of looking at things and feeling like if nothing gets in, I've had a unsuccessful year. I love it. That's really good, really good. I love it. That's a great advice. I think that was the perfect question because I think that was an amazing uh, advice. Oh. Ned, thank you very much. Uh, I don't want to take more of your time, but I really appreciate you meeting with me and sharing all this with everybody here. Thanks for inviting me, Jose. And also, great to see you again. So, uh, Thanks, Ned. Hope we get to catch up at many more conferences in the future. Love it. Thanks for joining me. And please stay in the loop for our next episode. I really hope everything we share here contributes to a happy and better PhD journey for you.